Well, good day, church. Let me begin with a word of pastoral prayer. We have a few people who are ill within our congregation, and uh, we continue to have some needs. So why don't we pray, commit some things to the Lord, and then also commit our time here in God's Word to Him. Let's pray together, church. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to gather today to worship you, to enjoy each other's company, and to spur one another on and encourage one another as we seek to follow you by faith. Uh, And as we gather here today, we want to pray for those who are unable to be with us. Uh, Lord, we today especially think of our dear sister Elaine, uh, who is going through another round of chemo and uh, is uh, just finding it really difficult. Um, And so, Lord and God, we continue to commit our dear sister to you. We thank you that she's joining us on a live stream right now, and I ask that uh, even at a distance she would Um, feel our love and your love for her. And I ask, dear Lord, that you would enable her to rest well, that the nausea and the pain would not be too much, and that during the season she would continue to find the deep sense of joy and delight in you. Uh, We pray also for our dear brother Mark and our dear sister Emily, who are feeling unwell today. We ask, dear Lord, also for your healing hand upon them, uh, that with good rest and recovery and perhaps medication, that their bodies will be strengthened as they seek to love and serve you and live for you. And Lord and God, as we gather here today once more, we uh, want to continue to commit to you our spacing needs. We uh, continue to thank you for the way that we um, are filling this hall and we have friends and family coming along to hear the gospel. Uh, We ask, dear Lord, that our physical infrastructure will not be a limitation on the way that we gather to worship and to spread the gospel. And so we continue to commit our needs to you, asking that you would answer them in your perfect and providential way. And as we come to your word right now, Lord, we ask that you would speak, uh, that we will hear not the words of man, for that is worthless and useless, but we hear the words of God as your word is open. We commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, we're starting a new series on the book of Romans this week, and we're going to spend the next four months in the first seven chapters of this book. And we're going to carefully comb our way through these verses to savor all that God has to say to us through His Word. Now, the book of Romans is really important. Uh, The British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones spent 14 years preaching through this one book, sometimes spending an entire sermon on one or two words. You're going to be glad that we are not doing that, right? But preachers have historically gone through incredible detail to expound on the book of Romans because so many core doctrines are contained herein. The theologian and reformer John Calvin says this about the book of Romans. It's in your outlines. He says, if we understand this epistle, we have a passage open to us to understanding the whole of Scripture. In other words, John Calvin is saying, if we understand Romans then we basically understand what the rest of the Bible has to say. Now, that's a major claim, right? And as we work our way through this book, I hope the reason for Calvin's claim becomes quickly clear and apparent to us. And if you leave your Bibles open, you'll notice that we're spending just uh, time on four verses today. And these verses are interesting because they are what you would typically call the greeting verses. Uh, That's how ancient letters typically began. It's a bit like how we start our emails in today's day and age, right? And we write an email and we say, dear so-and-so, what do we usually say after that? I hope this email finds you well, right? I don't really care. 
I just hope it finds you well, right? And what do we say after that? I'm writing to you concerning X, Y, and Z. Now, if you're at work, and if this email is a follow-up to previous emails, you may say, as per my last email, right? It's a bit of passive-aggressive tone in there. And if you've been bugging them a while and they haven't been getting back to you, then, then you say something along the lines of, this is a gentle reminder. It's not so gentle. One more reminder, I'm walking into your office, right? But it's a gentle reminder that you owe me something for the past six months and I can't do my job, right? These are all common email or letter writing conventions that we typically accept and then we just kind of ignore. It's just there to, to fill space. So much so that if you use Gmail, it sort of fills in the blank for you. You just press tab, right? How Paul starts Romans 1 can read a bit like that sometimes. Just kind of your introductory remarks before we get to what he really wants to say. But then, a closer examination of these verses tells us that there is something more significant going on here. There is something more significant going on because what we have to notice, isn't very closely, is that it's actually a miracle that Paul is writing this letter. Remember, this letter is supposedly going to enable us to unlock our understanding of the whole Bible. It's a miracle that Paul's writing that. Why do I say that? Well, Matthew read Acts 8 to us just then. And that verse was intentionally selected to help you recall that Paul's other name is Saul. And in Acts chapter 8, Saul or Paul was the one who approved the killing of Stephen the evangelist. What's more, Paul was the one who kickstarted the great persecution against Christians in Jerusalem. Indeed, Paul was the one who was destroying the church and putting Christian men and women in prison. If we blink, we'll miss it, right? But the Saul of Acts 8 is the Paul of Romans chapter 1. So here's a question. How could it be that one of history's greatest opponents of the faith has become one of the greatest defenders of the faith? That's actually what the book of Romans, indeed, what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. It's all about reversals. It's about forgiveness. It's about second chances. And it's about hope. So unsurprisingly, the importance of this entire book is already here in the opening verses. And we're going to explore this under three headings. Number one, the poverty of choice. Number two, the promise of the gospel. And number three, the power of the Spirit. Poverty, promise, and power. And as we work our way through this, it should become clear to us that God's grace knows no limits. God's grace knows no limits. Come to point one with me. Because I want to build on what I said earlier about Saul or Paul in Acts chapter 8, right? This is the great persecutor. This Paul didn't just want Christians thrown in jail for them to be silenced for their faith. He was actually very happy to have them killed. So as we come to Romans 1, you and I may naturally tend to think that God made a pretty poor choice in getting Paul to write this letter. Like, did he run out of options? Like, what's going on? I mean, look at verse 1 with me. Paul is described as a servant of Christ Jesus. He is called to be an apostle. He is set apart for the gospel of God. Those are three very important words or expressions to underline, right? Servant, apostle, and set apart. Because put together, we realize that Paul actually held a very humble yet huge position in the history of the church. It is humble because it is firstly a position of service of caring, 
of giving. The word servant here is actually the same word as slave. He is meant to serve at the pleasure of his master, Jesus. It's very similar to the expression of the word minister, which we use today um, in churches to speak of pastors, right? When we say someone is a minister of a church, we're saying that he is a servant, a servant of God. We're here to serve. It's a humble position. But you see, for Paul, it's also huge, right? Because the language of set apart also indicates that He's been set apart for a special purpose. It's like when you open up your closet uh, and you see lots of clothes, right? Some of you don't have lots of clothes and that's very obvious, but some of you have lots of clothes, right? But then you have particular clothes that are set apart, right? You have your regular PJs. You have your workout clothes. You have your going out clothes. You have your work clothes. But then you have your special clothes, Clothes that you wear to weddings, to graduations, uh, to maybe a special date. That's unique, right? Out of all your clothes, that's set apart for a special purpose and an occasion. Paul says that he has been set apart. For what purpose? Look at your text with me. He is called to be an apostle. Now, the word apostle literally just means messenger. So there's a sense in which there's nothing unique going on here. And yet the Bible uses the word apostle as a technical term to refer to the first group of followers that Jesus personally handpicked. That Jesus personally handpicked and trained to bring the gospel, the message of Jesus to the nations and to the generations. And for Paul, we read of him being hand-selected in Acts chapter 26. So part of this uniqueness then is that in scriptures, the apostles were given special authority. When you read the gospel writings, right? You know, in the gospels, we read of the apostles proclaiming the gospel. They're performing signs and wonders. They're healing the sick. They're casting out demons. Remember, all of these miracles serve to authenticate the message that they're preaching, right? There's authority there. And what's more, this special authority also extends to them being the authors of the New Testament. Do you realize this? Whenever you read the New Testament, it is either written by or connected to an early apostle of the church. That's authority. That's a really big deal. And so when we think about it, we notice once more, why would God choose Paul? Seems like a really poor choice. If you're like me, you probably wouldn't do it this way. If I were to interview someone for a position as significant as this, I would do some interviews, I'd do some background checks, right? You know, I, I would ask questions like, you know, how long have you been a Christian? Tell me about that. Who were the last three people you evangelized? Tell me about that. Have you ever led a church? Has it ever grown? I would ask them, explain the word justification to me, because if you can't, you're not going to be an apostle, right? We'll ask, you know, what is your five-year plan? Where do you see yourself in five years, right? I'd ask questions like these before appointing someone to a significant position. I might even check his LinkedIn account to see if there's anything suspicious going on, right? You might even do some background checks. I'd ask Paul to provide some references from past friends and family, right? I'll call and say, hey, tell me about Paul. What are his strengths and weaknesses? Would you describe Paul as a driven man? You know, tell me about that. And they'd say, yeah, he's driven. He's driven to destroy the church. Not what you expect, is it? And friends, that's because we commonly judge people either by appearance or by their past. 
we commonly judge people either by appearance or by their past. It's not uncommon to judge people by appearance because sometimes that's all we see. Right? We don't have access to people's hearts and we don't have immediate access to what they're thinking or feeling. So it's not unfair to judge by appearance. Sometimes that's all we can do. The trouble is our judgment can sometimes quickly descend to judgmentalism. That's the difference there. Our quick assessments can quickly become an opportunity to size someone up. What I mean is this, right? Uh, To make a judgment is to discern or to make a decision about someone based on objective reality. In other words, to judge is an action. For example, we look at Tom Lamb today and we say, wow, Tom is wearing a very tight-fitted shirt, all right? I've just made an observation and a judgment. But judgmentalism is to intentionally criticize harshly. It is to assume intentions and then to display a critical point of view. Judgmentalism is an attitude. In the same scenario, I'd say, you know, hey, Tom is wearing a tight-fitted shirt. What a show-off. He must love attention. You're married already, bro. Just calm down, right? What a guy, right? So insecure. What's the matter with you? You see, judgmentalism often comes from a place of pride. It comes from a place of self-righteousness. It actually comes from a place of insecurity. So when we look at someone and we begin drifting towards judgmentalism, what we have to accept is that at that moment, maybe the problem is less with them and more with us. You shouldn't be surprised that judgmentalism is actually one of the reasons for racism, for sexism, for ageism. And it's also one of the reasons, listen very closely, that many people find it hard to come to church. Because Christians, like others, tend to impute intentions and make people feel small, perhaps just because of their appearance. Because of what they wear, because of how they speak, because of what they do for work, because of where they went to school, because of where they've come from. In other words, judgmentalism is a posture where we are waiting for the other person to prove that they are worth loving. But we also judge people by people's pasts, don't we? You may have heard the sayings, right? Once a liar, always a liar. Once a thief, always a thief. Once a cheater, always a cheater. Now, there's a sense in which there are some strands of truth within this, right? You know, psychologically, we understand that past behavior strongly suggests the possibility of repeat offense. It's hard to break free from the past. It's hard to unlearn what we've always known. Uh, But you see, rooted in disbelief is that people cannot change, and we know it's not true, or at least want to believe it's not true. Or, Or worse, sometimes we tend to expect the worst in others. And, you know, on the one hand, it makes sense. But on the other hand, it doesn't. Because judging someone solely based on their past is actually a defense mechanism to guard ourselves from being hurt. It's actually not a proper way to live. Judging someone based on their past is always easier, right? Because we can pigeonhole them. We can categorize them. We can slap a label on them. And when we can do that, we can pigeonhole them. We find it easier to control them. And we find it easier to control how we feel and what we think about them. And like judging by appearance, judging someone by their past is also another way 
to get the person to prove that they are worth loving. And if we apply these twin principles to Paul, then we realize, again, what a poor choice he is. Because by appearance, he is a member of the Jewish elite who opposed Jesus' ministry. By past, he was actively involved in persecuting Christians and destroying churches. Could there be a worse person to be called and set apart to be an apostle? But of course, we know instinctively we cannot judge a person by their appearance or their past. We know it's wrong. We tell our children, right, back there, don't judge a book by its cover. They do it anyway. But, you know, we tell them not to, right? And we know it's wrong to judge someone purely by their past. In principle, at least, we believe in the idea of forgiveness. We like the idea of a second chance, especially when it's applied to us. And that's when we realize that these deep longings are actually rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because as you come to point two with me, what I hope we begin to realize is that the Christian message, the gospel, changes everything. That's actually the point. Verses one to four is not about Paul. Look at verse one. He is a servant of Jesus Christ. He is called and set apart for God and more specifically for the gospel of God. Because what Paul is saying here, that he is writing this grand book of the Bible, not because he is worth loving, but purely because of the gospel that God had promised in the Holy Scriptures, the Bible. This gospel, dear friends, is the message that we are saved and loved, not because we have shown ourselves to be worth saving and loving. We become Christians not by conformity to a particular set of expectations or a particular lifestyle. If it was, we would never attain it. Instead, we are saved and loved purely because God is merciful and kind. Because you see, Paul's appearance, Paul's past, made him a sinner. Or in the words of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he calls himself, this is self-acknowledgement, the chief of sinners. And being a sinner, Paul had every reason to be rejected and judged by God. He has not only just turned his back against God, he has spited God repeatedly. To put it plainly, Paul is a type of person you think could never be saved. Paul is the type of person you think could never become a Christian, the type of person whom we think God could never love because he is so far away from him. Do you know someone like that in your life? Someone who has turned their backs against God. Someone who has run so far away from God. Someone who wants absolutely nothing to do with God. And we subconsciously or maybe even consciously think to ourselves, Oh goodness, not even God can save him or her. Do, do we know people like that? Friends, you see, I think that for many of us, this issue is not abstract or academic. You have daughters, sons, you've got brothers and sisters, you've got mothers and fathers, you've got husbands and wives who are like this. People who live in such a way or have said particular things that worry you. You grieve the state of their souls. You're worried. You're anxious. To think that they do not know the hope and eternity that is found in Jesus causes you to lose sleep. You look at their appearance. You look at their past. Or you even look at their present and you feel hopeless. 
Dear brother and sister, I want to encourage you with the promise of the gospel today. Because you see the word promise in verse 2, look at your Bibles with me, it's very significant, especially as Paul ties this promise to the prophets in the Holy Scripture. Because you see, God's promise for salvation, especially through the prophets, were always made to restless rebels. When we think of prophets, we think of the Old Testament figures, right? We think of Isaiah, we think of Jeremiah, we think of Hosea. Who were they called to preach to? They weren't sent to preach to those whose hearts were ready for change and transformation. They weren't going to a revival rally with people ready to go. They weren't going to socially acceptable people who had it all together. No, they were sent to preach to people who did not want to hear it and who will sometimes kill them for their preaching. People whose hearts were hard and people who thought they knew better, but you see, God's promise remained for them. God's promise is not contingent upon the people becoming good before they come to God. God's promise doesn't wait for people to prove that they are worth loving. God's promise of redemption and salvation is given. Are you ready? especially to the restless rebels, especially to the restless rebels. And it's the promise that God saves us, not because we are good, but because God is good. It's the promise that though we are sinners who deserve to pay the penalty for our own rebellion against God, God himself in Jesus Christ bears that for us. It's the promise that even the most wayward of sinners have a second chance, not, account, not on account of themselves, but on account of God who loves. It's the promise that God's grace knows no limits. So that even someone like Paul, the great persecutor, can be transformed. And it's a promise that is enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now look at verse 4 with me, because that sounds a little bit complex, primarily because of the way the sentence is constructed, right? I don't know what English translation you have, but most English translations struggle with this a little bit because they are translations from original languages, right? Hebrew, or in this particular case, Greek. And any of you who speaks more than one language recognize that translation is not easy, right? It's rarely 100% perfect. But what verse 4 is effectively saying is that Jesus Christ, the Savior of our sin, is enthroned as the Son of God. He is the Messiah, the long-awaited one. And He is enthroned through the resurrection. And all of this is accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. Now, obviously, we could spend a lot of time expanding on the theological intricacies of this particular verse, and that would be a really good use of our time, but come to Faith Foundations, we'll do that then, right? For the sake of this sermon, it's helpful for us to recognize that in very simple terms, Jesus is our Savior because God planned it to be so, and God's power makes it so. I'll say it again. Jesus is our Savior because God planned it to be so, and God's power makes it so. In other words, we are saved from our sin and rebellion, not because we've planned it, but because God has planned it. We are saved not because we are powerful, but because God is. And because God's power knows no limits, God's grace knows no limits. Does that make sense? 
It means that no heart can be too hardened. God can soften all hearts. It means that no one can drift so far from God. God pursues them even to the end. It means that no situation is too impossible. God can break through all of that. Do you you believe in that? God's power is greater than all of that. God's power is one that spoke creation into existence, that defeats mighty enemies at the lift of His finger, that overcomes death by His Son. This is unparalleled power. It is unparalleled grace. It is grace that knows no limits. That's our hope. That's the message of Romans, church. It depicts the sinful state of humanity in rebellion. It shows how we have all wandered our own way, establishing ourselves as gods over our lives, over and against the God of the universe. We've pursued false gods, yet at the same time, it demonstrates the depths of God's grace for us, a grace that knows no bounds, a grace that calls a sinner to himself, a grace that restores us into who we were made to be. A grace where even a persecutor like Paul is brought into the family of God. Church, one then are some implications arising out of this for us. Four verses, but I think there's so much that we can mine from this. I think there are a few. Uh, Firstly, I think there is a chance that some of us in this room need to come out of the closet. And by that, I mean some of us probably need to recognize that we are not perfect. And we don't have to pretend like we are perfect because of the gospel. Maybe you've been hiding, right? Maybe it's time to come clean, come out of the closet and say, Hey guys, you know what? I don't have it all together. And I pray that what Paul wrote here helps you. Because if you think that being a Christian is about having the right appearance or the right past or the right family history, you've missed it. You've missed the message of grace. Becoming a Christian is recognizing that we have fallen short, that we are not put together, that we have turned our backs against God, and then relying on His power and His love for forgiveness and restoration. Listen very closely. Deception is detrimental to development to growth. So so don't deceive yourself because you are certainly not deceiving God. Friends, all of us have a deep longing to be accepted and to be loved. This finds its fulfillment by turning away from all the things you pursue for love and acceptance, your career, your sexual identity, your relationships, your family, or your pursuit of thrills. Turn from these things and turn to Jesus. Since the good news is that Christ saves us purely by His grace, let me encourage you today to consider coming out of your closet and saying to God, Okay, God, I need you. I am no longer scared of my appearance or my past anymore. I'm ready for you to change me by the power of Christ. And my dear friend, if you are overwhelmed by your guilt and shame, then I want you to know that the Heavenly Father's arms are wide open for you today. If you turn to Him, He will not condemn you. If you trust in Him, He will never turn you away. He will never tell you, I told you so. And He will never say, sorry, mate, you've run out of chances. He'll never do that. He is a God of second chances. Uh, Which is why here is another implication, and I think this is for us as a church. We need to pay attention to this, okay? 
Because you see, since Romans 1 verses 1 to 4 is true, then we need to be a church that welcomes prodigals. We are a church of prodigals for prodigals, right? The word prodigal reminds you of the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15 verses 11 to 32, doesn't it? You may remember this. It's a powerful and penetrating story of two sons. You know, the younger brother says to his father, give me your inheritance, which is the equivalent of saying, I wish you were dead. Give me what's mine. I want my money. He takes it, he runs off, he squanders it on cheap thrills, but after a while, he recognizes how foolish that was. He descends to the pits of despair. All of the thrills have disappointed. All of his friends have departed, and he's at this moment where he's sharing accommodation with pigs. And he realizes that he could just go home, and if his father would just accept him as a servant, his life would be better than just staying with pigs. He, he knows that, you know, I... Just to be a servant or a slave would just be good enough. And so he musters up the courage and he begins his journey home. And as he slowly starts walking home, he actually sees his father from a distance. And his father stands there, instead of crossing his arms, like, I told you, so I told you you'd be back. See, honey, I told him, give me three months, he's, he's back, right? Instead of doing that, you know, you know, ancient times, everyone wore kind of skirt-like clothes, no, no pants, the scripture tells us the father pulls up what he's wearing above the ankle line in order that he can run. That he could run to his son who is hanging his head in shame as he walks home. He runs towards his son. He throws expensive jewelry on him. He puts an expensive robe on him. He puts on a massive celebration for his son's return. Now, this son is confused as anything, right? Like just half an hour ago, he was with the pigs, right? Now, and he knows he's done messed up, right? And then his father utters arguably one of the most moving phrases in the Bible. Are you ready for this? He looks at his son and he says, For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He is lost, but now is found. He was lost, but now is found. Friends, the reason the story of the prodigal son continues to grip generations of Christians is not because it's in Scripture, that's part of it. It's not even just because it captures the heart of the gospel, which is contained in the book of Romans. It continues to grip us today because it portrays our reality, it portrays our experiences. That all of us have turned away from God in exchange for cheap thrills. All of us have, at a moment of clarity, recognized our folly. And all of us have hung our heads in shame, approaching the Father, only to realize that He runs to us. And He lavishes us with grace, not because He is desperate, but because He loves us. And church, since this has been our experience then this ought to be our posture as well, no? So Grace Point, will we be a church that willingly welcomes prodigals? People who possibly went along to church sometime in their life, maybe when they were younger, but they've since left. Maybe they were disinterested, maybe they were hurt. And maybe they wanted to try life their own way. Christianity was in the way of this fun and fulfilling life. Maybe they've been led astray. Maybe they left because of family circumstances, right? 
Yet they've reached a point in their lives where they want to reconnect and they want to rediscover. They're asking the hard questions of life. They're reconsidering where they stand before God. They realize that the world has promised too much and has consistently underdelivered. Grace point, will we welcome them as the Father welcomes them? Or will we keep them at a distance because of their appearance, because of their past? And Grace Point, and especially here at Lickham, this is a particular point of application for us because I genuinely believe as your pastor that we in this room right now are uniquely positioned to minister to and to serve prodigal sons and daughters. Let me tell you why. As I examine the 20 to 30 most recent newcomers of our church over the past 12 to 18 months, I've gone through our name list and I've been trying to study this, right? At least 70, 75% of them are what I would call prodigals. They grew up in a Christian home or they went to a Christian school. Maybe they tagged along to youth group with some friends or they've gone to some Christian events. They are familiar with the gospel. They've heard it. But at some point in their lives, it became unclear or irrelevant. Perhaps they got distracted, but they've returned. And as they've come to Grace Point upon the recommendation of their friends, they've been met with the welcoming community. They've been met with a clear and a fresh and relevant communication of the gospel of grace. They found a place where the love of God is not just spoken of, but they've seen and heard and felt. And in that process, they're recovering. They're healing. Their relationship with God is being restored and reconciled. They were once lost, but by the power and the grace of God, they are now found. You, you see, church, whenever we think of evangelistic or missional strategies, we often think of those who've never been reached, right? Like your neighbor who's never heard the gospel. Like you, 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 you spell the word Jesus, they pronounce it as Jesus, right? They're like, they've got no idea what's going on, right? And it's good to think about those friends like that, right? But in the process, I think we can also very easily neglect prodigals. We'll think, oh, they know it already. They don't want anything to do with it because they're proud, so just forget about it, right? Did you realize that prodigals are often those who feel most cast out and most left out? What if we as a church intentionally and consciously change our posture to be a church of prodigals, reaching out to prodigals by the grace of God? Let me tell you something, right? If we focus just on that, just on that, we could easily fill church buildings 10 times the size just because there are so many out there. Let me ask you a question, right? As I describe prodigals, how many prodigals do you know? How many people do you know who used to have some contact with the Christian faith but have since departed? They may have even been your youth leaders or Sunday school leaders or whatever it is, right? I reckon some of you know more prodigals than you do non-believers. Now let me ask you, how many of these prodigals need the grace of God? How many of them need the hope of the gospel? How many of them need the love of God? The answer, all of them. A hundred percent of them. Can we be a church that holds on to our convictions while reaching out to them with compassion? Oh, I pray we do. I pray we can. So let me give you a point to ponder this week, right? Who was a prodigal that I can reach out to? Who was a prodigal that I can reach out to? It could be a son. He could be living in your own roof. It could be a sister. 
could be a brother, could be a spouse. This might be a really good week to reconnect with them. Ask them how they're going. And you're doing all this not to invite them to church, right? Because that can seem very insincere. But you're just reconnecting with them. You just want to love them. You just want to care for them. And who knows? God may use this rekindling of friendship to bring new life. Listen very closely, church. God hasn't given up on prodigals, nor should we. Who was a prodigal you can reach out to this week to extend and express God's love? You probably have many names already. Which is why lastly, I want us to be a church to start praying for what I would call impossible people. Now by impossible people, I mean those that I've mentioned before, people who seem so far from God's grace that it seems like salvation is impossible. It's the Pauls, right? persecutor of the Christian faith, but then turn evangelist for Christ. It's also for the C.S. Lewis's. We often quote C.S. Lewis up here, but he was actually a staunch atheist who was converted by grace and became one of the strongest apologists for the Christian faith. It's for the Elliot Coos, pastor's kid, who grew up despising the legalistic tendencies of Chinese churches and wanting nothing to do with that because I just did not get it. Yet gripped by grace and longing and seeking to invite prodigals back into the fold of God. Now, I am not saying for a moment that I'm on par with any of these people, except that at face value, it was clear that absolutely none of us could have been saved apart from the power of God. Since God is so powerful, who are the impossible people we ought to be praying for? Asking that the Lord will transform their hearts. Again, a brother, a sister, a daughter, a son, a colleague, a mother, a father, a neighbor, a spouse. I want to tell you something, right? Praying is really powerful. Now, that seems obvious, right? But I want to tell you two reasons. First of all, God could be changing our hearts as we pray for them. Because as we pray for them, what we may discover is that in the process of praying, we discover that we have actually crazy, self-righteous hearts. The story of the prodigal son often focuses on the younger brother, but it misses the older brother. You remember, when a younger brother comes back, the older brother's angry. The older brother says, how is that fair? Dad... I've been here slaving away for you. I've done all the right things, but he gets a robe and I don't get a robe. He gets an Omega Speedmaster and I get a Swatch Omega combination $400 thing. Like, what's going on here? That's not fair. You know, when we start praying for particles, we might start feeling that way, you know? That we have done all the right things, that we have all the right appearances, we have all the right past. Yet God saves them and us. How is that fair? Don't you see? You haven't gotten grace. You still think. You still think that you coming along to church and doing all the right things, that's what justifies you before God. You still think that. But praying exposes our heart of hearts and shows us, you know what? I am just as much in need as them. Prayer is powerful not just for them but for us as well. But you see, through our prayers, we may also realize that, you know what? We may have been recipients of grace, but we're not very good at giving grace. And upon realizing that, we may have understood that, you know what? Maybe I need this just as much as them. 
But of course, God changes hearts through prayer as well, right? He has the power to soften hearts. It seems really unrealistic, right? But I want you to see today that it's actually not. You may even have a twin shares very similar DNA with you, brought in the same house, reading the same Bible, and over the course of the years, you've just gone separate ways and they've just departed so far away from God. And you've had conversations with that twin, right? And you've, you've done your best R.C. Sproul apologetics with them. You've read all the books with them and you're just thinking, oh my goodness, right? Like if R.C. Sproul can't convince you, no one can, right? That's what you're thinking. You've read the Bible with them. You've done all the right things and you're just going, that's it. That, that, it's done. Uh, nothing more I can do. No. God's grace knows no limits, don't you see? God's power knows no bounds. That's why Paul says 1 Corinthians 15 verses 9 to 10. Let me read it for us. It's in your outlines. For I am the least of the apostles and do not deserve to be called an apostle. Don't you see? He gets it. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. He knows it. No illusion, right? What else does he say? But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. Oh, church, we are who we are because of God's grace that knows no limits. We can be a church of prodigals for prodigals because God's grace knows no limits. The gospel church, listen very closely, is for people we least expect. Let's pray for them. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us today. And today we come before you with humility, recognizing that the grace of God is so sweet and so life-transforming. And so God, today we want to particularly lift up names of our friends and family to you who seem like impossible people, who are the least expected people to trust in you. And God, we pray for them firstly to reveal our attitude towards them. But we pray to you also that you would change their attitude towards you. That you would soften their hearts, that you would move them, that you would shape them, that you would transform, that you would draw them to you. The language that the reformers use is irresistible grace, that your grace will become so sweet like honey that they are just attracted to it. And our Lord and God, we recognize that our words have no power to do that, but you can. And so gracious God, we continue to commit to you right now um, those prodigals that we can think of and ask that your work will be upon their lives even right now. We commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. At church, right now, um, we have a couple of minutes, um, and I would love to invite us to do two things. Uh, first of all, I, I, it would be such a missed opportunity if you walked out of this room without actually thinking about who are some prodigals that we can reach out to, right? Um, and so right now, let me give us a um, um, couple of moments of silence. Um, grab a pen and paper or grab your phone out and open up your notes app. Um, and in a few moments of silence, actually pray and consider who are some of these people that you want to be reaching out to. Maybe not this week. It might be a bit too much, but maybe this month, maybe this year. Oh, I think it would be a great application if we all, all of us, wherever we are, reached out to a handful 
as an expression of God's love for them. Who are a few particles you could reach out to this week, month, year? Let me give you a few moments to write those names down. Go for it, everyone. Church, let me pray for us. Our gracious God, we pray for the friends and families that we have named um, during this time of silence and reflection. And we ask, dear Lord, that you will cause our hearts to bleed for them. That we would have a particular restlessness that causes us to be so anxious by the state of the souls because we love them. And so, Lord, may we be people who fall on our knees desperately asking for your transformative power over their lives. That children's and grandchildren's and and families and friends would turn to you. Um, And so, Lord and God, may we never be people who become so comfortable with grace that we don't choose to offer it or we don't choose to share it. Our Lord and God, as we pray for them, would you please also do a work in our hearts, and our lives as well. We commit these things to you and these precious names to you in your son's most holy name. Amen. Ben, why don't you come and lead us in a few songs of response?